Good evening and welcome to Nox Mente. Tonight's guest is Gordon White. Gordon first became interested in Western occultism at the age of 13, following a series of intense dream experiences, and this interest became a lifelong pursuit. His esoteric leanings found an inspirational overlap with his exploration of the Pacific following the publication of Graham Hancock's classic Fingerprints of the Gods. This led him to study documentary production at, the, at a university level, film an underwater documentary about Nam Madal, and then go on to work for BBC Magazine's Discovery Channel and news media companies in both hemispheres. Over the course of this journey, Gordon has had the privilege of speaking to some of the world's leading authorities in Assyriology, Religious Studies, Genetic Research, Hermeticism, Psy Research, the History of Western Magic, and Ufology. The overriding mission of his work is an attempt to cohere an evidence-based Western magical worldview that combines history, paranormal research, and the best available scientific research in ufology. Gordon, welcome to Knox Monte. Welcome, Thank Gordon. You very much. This is quite an esteemed moment for us. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not used to seeing Jerry nervous. Yeah, there you go. Experience. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Uncle Albert. I was, this was all goofed up. Anyway, welcome. Yes, and so Gordon is now in, at the other end of the world in New Zealand, right? No, Tasmania. Tasmania. Oh, Tasmania, Tasmania. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have lived in New Zealand. I lived in New Zealand for almost seven years. So there's quite a time difference here for the American people. It's uh, this is more convenient having done the podcast from London. Um, I'm as we were discussing before we hit the record button, I'm very much a morning person, so I 11 a.m. very convenient time to be uh, to be on the show. And this is, of course, my favorite time because we're heading into the uh, the dusk of the day here, so the sun's starting to set, orange is rolling in, and the witchery of it all. Nice, <laughs> it's a foot. So uh, let's um let's dive right into the show. Cool. Do you have anything we, you want to add right from the get go, Jer? Uh, just that we we didn't model our first question after yours per se, but the idea definitely. Very good. Very good. So well, actually, yeah, I didn't. I wasn't. Um, our questions just were all organic and not really. So if they do resemble anyone else's, it is, we're all talking about dreams. So tell us about the world you grew up in, Gordon, the stuff that sticks out, like your earliest memories um, and possibly anything that may have influenced you, like in pop culture, TV shows or stuff like that. Interesting. Um, my childhood in general was bucolic or even idyllic. So I grew up in a former coal mining town on, on Australia's east coast. And my parents built a house on a hill. So it, the view looked out over three beaches and so on. And, you know, it was peaceful. And uh, there was not much really in the way of hardship. We weren't rich or anything, but it's not a war zone. And uh, it's safe for kids to play out and so on. Um, we, my father grew up in New Guinea, uh, and so our holidays are very much informed by the Pacific. So we would, um, he couldn't go a year without heading somewhere into it. So Polynesia, Melanesia, uh, and, and so on. And I think the, when I look back on it, the natural environment, problematic term, but whatever, uh, was probably quite informative. It's it's something Australians 
only notice when they leave the country. But for instance, we're just talking about living in Auckland. My first week or so when I got there, I'm clambering all over Mount Eden, which is this volcano, one of the many volcanoes in Auckland. And there's long grass and I wanted to walk the edge to look out. And I kind of stopped myself because you don't walk through long grass in Australia because um, there are snakes, but there are no snakes yes. in New Zealand. <laughs> Uh, and so that kind of the the presence of the natural world in a benign way, but also in a kind of confronting way, was um, probably informative, I guess. Uh, and so in that respect, the the landscape was, I think, contributed a lot to my medium to long term interests. Uh, in terms of pop culture, uh, Australian television in the eighties wasn't great, arguably. It's not much better now. Uh, so it was really only in the 90s when um, I started to, that, so my teenage years, uh, different music and comics and films and, and other programs did become influential. So classic 90s stuff, um, The Invisibles, Buffy, Jurassic Park, maybe not so classic, but um, that, that definitely was something that uh, stuck with me. Um, I read Lord of the Rings. I, I, my mother was an English teacher. She's still alive. She's just retired. Um, so I read Lord of the Rings on my own at about six. I, I had to sort of hit some milestones early and obviously didn't understand a majority of it possibly when I was six, but I've read it a bunch of times since then. So that kind of fed into it as well. There were novels and magical realism and, and, and fantasy stuff that was very... Uh, very affecting, I guess, in, in those formative years. Um, so those would be the kind of twin, those would be the kind of twin impacts. In terms of, like, I guess, blatantly magical stuff, uh, again, it's something I only learned by leaving the country for 15 years and coming back, that uh, Australia's the oldest continent on Earth and it's their home to the oldest continually practised cultures on Earth. And there is a lot of the interaction with local land spirits is challenging if you don't face that. And there are some things in my early magical career that I did massively wrong when it comes to dealing with original custodianship of the land and, and so on. So they, some of the more creepy paranormal experiences are to do with that. Do you have uh, like the, maybe just to interject in there, do you have uh, uh, <laughs> uh, an example? Do I have... Oh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Right. Well, I've actually written about this one on the blog, but um, after kind of finding magic, so after the weird dream experiences and so on, and there, there's probably some screen memories of stuff in there, I um, wandered down the hill about in, in the old money. It's probably about a three-and-a-half-mile walk to an independent bookstore that's no longer there um, but was excellent at the time and bought a bunch of terrible books, like, you know, um, Wicker 101. Oh, thing. no. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, it's where everyone begins, right? So I don't actually hold it against myself or the books. Yes. And, well, in that period of time, for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, and so I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to do this. And so my friend who was also involved in it, or reading the books anyway, we went and decided to do like essentially a Wiccan self-initiation at the top of this waterfall in a national park that's um, sort of is a little bit further north from where my parents live. And um, that turned out to not be the right thing to do because we were using, and it was, I, 
I struggle to call it Celtic because it's more a 70s American view of Celtic attempting to be done in Australia, which obviously has opposite seasons and, and so on. And so we certainly got effects out of this self-initiation ritual, but they weren't the ones we wanted. Uh, and the, the presence, the feeling was old and angry um, that kind of showed up at the edge of what we were doing. And then essentially followed us on the um, almost two mile walk back through the bush down to the beach and then along the beach and then back up the cliff and, and towards our respective houses to the point of sort of looking back and getting visual manifestations of, and, and in retrospect, so it was terrifying and arguably didn't work, but arguably did because it makes you realize there is something to this wider yes. reality. Yes. Uh, and, and so in retrospect, although it was terrible and it was um, profoundly culturally insensitive, we were 13, um, it, it really did set the, there was no way of me thinking myself out of it after that. So it, it, it's, it's clearly real and I'm clearly not very good at it. And, uh, and that was in many respects it for me. That's, that's a great, that's a, that's great. Even as an analogy for other people looking on to um, get a grasp on the fact that there is more out there and that the nature and the actual area needs to be considered. And so, um, yeah, it's a good thing. It was just that, that it wasn't more dramatic. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, it was <laughs> I mean, that's dramatic I, I don't, Yeah, I don't know what, I don't know what we were expecting. It stuck with me. So in, in Chaos Protocols, when, it, when you try to cook down how you move people permanently into an awareness of wider realities, I call it becoming invincible because what you essentially need is an event that yes. makes you like never unpick or um, talk yourself out of, which can happen, but never unpick or talk yourself out of the, the wider context or the, or the wider reality. And um, that certainly did that for me. And so it's weird to try and convey that in a way that is so that it's made available to people who are interested because the more classic 20th century approach would have been do this exact ritual or do these things. And indeed mm -hmm. that's more or less what was in this terrible book that I was working from. Right. Uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't need to be that that's kind of mistaking the menu for the meal. You actually need a, an experience that can be spontaneous alien encounter, whatever you want, yeah. or, um, or you need to find a way to engineer it. And I don't especially care in the how if that happens because you can tell that you once people have become invincible it's a before or after you can smell it on people if they're yes if they're living in that uh, if they're living in that wider reality and even if we describe it differently i'm i'm fine with that yeah yeah well language language is can be sticky i like the i and what and what i just said and just to be clear for people listening later is the idea of the culturally insensitive i think that that's yes is a very important concept that is still um, right here at the forefront. I mean, I think it's just now kind of bubbling up in a, in a good way um, as far as awareness in the magical arts. Yeah, I think so. And it's difficult and, it, and I don't know what the next steps are or how, 
how that's going to look in the end, which is the positive, because we we don't actually know. Uh, right. And and it also puts us in in many respects in some good company, because if you look at the few academic disciplines, I guess that I consider worthwhile, one of them, the main one being anthropology, they're struggling with the same thing, which mm-hmm. is like how do we compare and look at and learn from in ways that uh, are aware of power structures and historic relationships and and aren't appropriative and aren't extractive Mm -hmm. because the solution isn't to split apart. Uh, Clearly, the direction is some form of interactivity and togetherness. It's just how one does that because the last few attempts haven't gone that well. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I'm, I couldn't help but think uh, that there's, going back to the elementals or the land spirits, were, were, did, did the natives work better with those spirits or have a better relationship or an easier time with them? I don't know if they had an easier time. They certainly worked better than me because I didn't at all. Mm-hmm. But here we found, here we f- let me tell you what they got right. And it's not just the Australian Aborigines. Let me tell you what. And I just meant in general, not particularly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Well, what they got right, which we don't and we think is, and this is a very 70s approach. This is the kind of neo-shamanism, buy a dream catcher approach, which is Mm -hmm. that it's all benign, that you are a nice person (laughs) by, by interacting with these nice nature spirits. And the West's problem is that we've separated ourselves from nature, which is a term we invented. Uh, and what you will find in non-Western cultures, and even Western cultures that haven't had that um, nature culture split, is a much more nuanced understanding of the more than human world, which is it's dangerous uh, and it is, you know, sublime and, and, and profound and real and has its own life. And so what I, I have no idea what the... Um, what the spirits were that were so angry with us on top of that waterfall. But I venture that uh, local indigenous people wouldn't do a version of what we did there, right? Mm -hmm. Probably because that spirit is old and a dick. And uh, that is something we miss, that just because it's real doesn't make it nice or doesn't make it there for us. There is a very capitalist consumer underpinning that if you don't look at will inform how you attempt to interact with the more than human world and it will knock you on your ass if you um don't have that wider nuance and we did used to have it if you look at the history of magic in europe Mm. um it was far more nuanced but there is emerging out of 20th century consumerism essentially (laughs) a kind of supermarket um uber spirits on demand approach which is which we might initially think of as a good move, like, yay, we're, we're, we're acknowledging spirits. I'm like, but you, you, you kind of haven't. You're still stuck in that dominant worldview. So that needs to be interrogated, and it happens one way or the other, the nice or the rough way, to paraphrase Tina Turner, right? Yes. You know it, you know it <laughs> to be with, and you realize that and, and, and approach it in that way, or you don't and think everything's fine, and it will eventually knock you on your ass. So there's kind of no way of getting around it. It's interesting. It can be quite hard learned, hard learned um, lessons there. The, yeah. the very first thing when you said that too is I, I was thinking this very protective spirit that clearly was 
I'm in, and rightly so, had taken offense to these two young. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I come into your house. <laughs> exactly. That's right? what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who Plus, is I think, this? I think the yeah. idea that, uh, that the spirit was angry because it was older or aged is really interesting too, because you never really think a spirit ages or, I mean. Well, it, it felt, it felt primary. It felt like the, the post sort of, I think I called it Cthulhu Dundee because um, Australia feels old mm-hmm. yeah. uh, because it is mm-hmm. and, and land spirits feel old and it's so old that it has that Lovecraftian, not necessarily evil, but humans are new to it, let alone white people, mm-hmm. humans are new to it. And that felt, that was a very visceral experience of um, its hostility. It wasn't just that we had offended it by not using its name, although that was clearly a part of it. But it, it also, its anger was kind of like a damn kids get off my lawn. But in this yeah. case, it's we're all humans. It wasn't, yes. uh, it wasn't just white people. And that's interesting. That hasn't been necessarily my experience with, um, say, British spirits. Mm-hmm. But it is, it is a feature of my experience of um, Australian spirits, I guess. John D. just whipped them all in a shave over there. <clears throat> Maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So let's um, continue on with your early life. And I'm curious about religion before you started finding your way out into the magical world. Were you raised in a religion? No. um, We were, mother is Catholic. So we were culturally Catholic, fish on Fridays, et cetera. Weren't Mm -hmm. church going. Uh, But I was kind of raised without it in its entirety to the point, this is a story my father tells, because my grandparents who lived a few doors up were very Catholic, um, very Catholic. And they would come to our house on Sundays mid-morning after Mass. And Dad tells this story of me being young, three or four, and saying, you know, and then where have you been? And she says, I've just been to church, darling. And I think about this for a minute and say, oh, did you get married? (laughs) Um, that's she never quite she never really liked my father i think that's just the case with mother-in-laws and so on right um and she said well dad tells me that she shot him this just icy i hate you still oh my (laughs) so um so we had the cultural bits to it but i didn't necessarily have any particular baggage to unpack psychologically Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I was trying to get at as we dive deeper into your 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 dreamland, your dream sure. landscape. Um, also, in this early period, do you recall? Do you have recall now of early dreams you may have had where you yeah 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 and all that? Would you share? Well, I you had, um, again, there'll be some of this stuff somewhere on the blog, but I had repeated hag attack situations so the sleep paralysis classic hag hag kind of thing uh and they were terrifying that was another example this is real in some way i i'm completely on board with the neurology behind it which is the different parts of the brain waking up at different times and that's fine that's how you get the paralysis but it the the entity in the room having some experience with entities by now um has an objective reality and it was very interesting to watch it you become aware of it in, in half sleep at the door and it would wait until it knew that you knew it was there and then it would rush up and essentially feed off the terror and uh i would get that yes. reasonably regularly 
Um, there are also another sort of similar... How old were you in that period when it was oh, first That would have been from as, lo- as early as I can remember back up until about 11 or 12. Okay, yeah, um, so it's definitely formative. Oh, and it's that's the classic age for the sleep paralysis encounters. Some people rarely will get them after that, but it it sort of stops with the onset of puberty. Um, it's something to do with brain development and so on. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm on board with the science of it. It's just not a full explanation of what happened. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple of other recurring dream experiences to do with um, that appear to be screen memories of something to do with being bound and having large needles, except I remember them as sewing needles rather than needles that when I look at it may well have been screen memories of a kind of classic UFO encounter because I have memories of like Romulan war, not memories of, but in the dreams there were Romulan warbirds and big needles and I would be shrunk down and sort of bound by the weave of the, um, the bedding. And so I'm essentially, so all the pieces are there. I'm restrained and there are needles and there's a spaceship and there's a kind of bee-headed creature in the room. Uh, All the pieces are there of a classic UFO encounter. Right. Or an abduction encounter, but they're they're screened. I'm remembering them differently as a child. And it's only been in the last few years that I think back of it. It actually came from talking to Mike Cleland about it, who obviously is the owl UFO nerd. Um, Super nerd. Super nerd. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe kind of think maybe there's something, uh, maybe there's something behind the screen memories. Maybe there isn't. They had that kind of weird metallic mouthfeel of... um, a particular kind of class of spirit encounters. So I don't know. That would certainly be one of them. Uh, or that those recurring dreams would be part of it. Uh, and the hag attacks, whilst I don't think they had a lasting impact beyond me being aware that there's something about this that's, that's real, um, I don't know. It's uh, maybe I need to find a good hypnotist in southern Tasmania and find out. Do you, and furthering on the hag attacks, the hag writing, did you ever get any kind of visuals with it? No, because I wouldn't open my eyes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. So it would, this is, the shape of it is, is classic, but it kind of comes right up to your face as you're asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wouldn't open my eyes, but it would be right there. Yeah. Um, so not even once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's, um, that's good. You know, it's funny. I, I hear a lot of people, um, talking about sleep paralysis. I still encounter it by the way. And I yeah. think I'm probably in your age range. Um, so it, what 22, <laughs> exactly. Darling 23. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think we're both old enough to be your parents. So. Yeah. <laughs> So, but I I find that interesting. I've been finding as we go deeper into these conversations, the paralysis stuff has caught more of my attention as mm. we're pulling in more data. So I've been taking notes. Me too. Um, Nick Redfern writes some good stuff about things like road hypnosis and and how that may impact uh, UFO encounters and that kind of thing. And yes. and there is a there is a macro hypothesis in there to do with neurology. And the key is to to jailbreak neurology so that you have an awareness that mind doesn't equal brain. But nevertheless, there's really interesting stuff in neurology. And um, 
And there is a macro hypothesis in there somewhere to do with actual chemical change, electrochemical changes in the brain and subsequent high strange events. And, uh, and I'm quite interested in the sleep paralysis stuff for that reason as well. Yeah. Even if you look at, <clears throat> if you look at over the last 30,000 years, how humans have most commonly interacted with the more than human world, it has involved essentially changing brain chemistry one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Drugs, dancing, drumming, sleep deprivation, whatever. Um, so there's a macro hypothesis in there. Uh, I think too often, particularly in, in the sort of modern Fortean world, people jump to a conclusion rather than an hypothesis. Um, and so it, it has, it kind of like dumbs down what should be an opening up of, of research, but um, there is definitely something to it. Definitely. And it's fascinating as it's unfolding more. Um, okay, so let's move into how how you experience the dreamscape currently. So, and what what we're looking for is, you know, all the senses, right? So how visual do you get tactile stuff? Is there scent, audio, all this? Um, I've, I want to say I've gotten better at it. Um, I may have. So the, some of the experiences we've just described have been Dolby surround sound full color. Yes. Uh, and that is generally, we were kind of talking about this offline. I do a lot of dream stuff. It's always been quite important to me. So um, I've been, I have different lucid dreaming and dream recall practices that I've been using for 15 years. Uh, and so it varies. Like if you go to, if you eat like a squid and pepperoni pizza at 11 p.m. and, and hit the hay, you're going to get um, a very different experience than, than not. But there's a whole bunch of tactics to do with food and herbal supplements, um, blue lotus, um, fasting, all these kind of things that improve dream recall and dream experience. But I will you pause here for a minute and get throw. I I certainly have my things that I do, but what what works for you for a high lucidity? For a high lucidity, high lucidity. Um, I like fasting. Blue Lotus and um, getting to bed kind of early. like so you sort of start it beforehand as I said I got up at five a.m. today get up early so that you're tired around nine p.m. and uh, and kind of aim for a sort of ten to five a.m. experience make that a fast day obviously don't be drunk um, <laughs> which is like a reminder <laughs> for my to do list every day like drink yes no yes. Um, I, frankly I don't use that many supplements anymore because I don't need to. Yeah. Um, same. And, and really it's just the lucid dreaming um, situation. So I have, I will either record on my phone. If it's going to be one of those experiences, I'll have my phone next to me and I will record as soon as you wake up. Yes. Like voice record. Yes. And, and that's it. And, and honestly, if you do that for two weeks, you and you've never done it before, your dream recall and your lucidity and your dream interactivity will be, it'll be a 10x improvement. There is just such a uplift in, in doing this stuff for the first time, but that's generally it. And it's also kind of second nature now. Um, mm-hmm. So I will remember stuff. And, and I guess my morning procedure tends to involve 
recalling dreams anyway. I don't necessarily, and in fact, rarely record them, but I will tell myself what just happened as you, yes. in that period where you're waking up and it's all starting to dissolve away. I will sort of describe to myself what happened. And at, at that point, you're essentially making a memory out of your dream, but um, that sort of sticks, uh, sticks for longer. And there are things you can do. You can use either the end of the dream or a particular component that, that leaps out at you as a source for active imagination or journeying or whatever you want to call it. So you yes. can actually kind of go back into it. And that's generally my practice when I'm working through specific things. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and yeah, it bears fruit. Um, it's, I, I want to uh, mention, I've never tried the blue Lotus by the way. So I, I will give that a go. Um, I'm quite excited about that. I am wholeheartedly with you on fasting. Amazing. Yeah. The difference. So Absolutely. my blue Lotus cocktail, uh, <laughs> <laughs> is to steep it in red wine. Oh, um, so oh excellent. Drink beforehand. But, uh, and you're heading into summer, which is good. So if you get clear night sky, um, it feels like if you steep it in red wine for an hour or so, a bit longer, and like really steep it. So an don't just hour. put a little bit in. Yeah. Uh, put a load in. So you will alter the, it won't taste super pleasant. It doesn't taste bad, um, but it won't taste super pleasant. And you drink that. And my, my experience of it, because I, I, I rem, I'm reminded to do this in the summer, in, in clear nights, is you can kind of, it almost feels like coming up on ecstasy, but not getting to the top. It's this sort of beginning of it. And you can kind of hear or feel the stars. It's a really interesting chemical, given that, you know, Egyptian blue lotus. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. depicted in, in 18th dynasty tombs and so on. Yes. It's it just kind of interesting to me that, given the fixation on the stars that you find in Egypt, that your experience of the molecules in, in the blue lotus is associated with it. But you can, you kind of do that and then obviously brush your teeth and go to sleep. And, and it seems to be from a dream perspective, you've got a couple of hours effect and, uh, and you notice the difference. It doesn't improve lucidity, but it does generally, well, it doesn't improve recall. It might improve lucidity. Maybe. Yes. Even. There's a difference. <laughs> yeah. I'm quite excited about that. I wrote that down, let it steep a good, good amount for an hour. I'm going to yeah. give this a go for sure. Do it. It's fun. I like that. Okay. So I did, I kind of, I wanted to pause on that so people could also possibly go along for that ride and see what works for you. Back to the dreamscape for you. Mm -hmm. So when you're having the full audio, that whole surround experience, how does that play out? Like, does it sometimes follow you into after when you're, when you're waking up? Have you had like a residual from it? No, but there is, a, there is a more, and this is the kind of lucid component. You sort of lucid at both ends of it where I experience, I simultaneously experience the bodily awareness of being in the bed and the essentially bodily awareness of being in the dreamscape simultaneously. And they, it's almost like a David Lynch overlap for about a mm -hmm. minute where I'm experiencing both as, mm -hmm. as, as I come into it or out of it. Uh, and it's, it's usually fixated on the hands. That's kind of how I realize I'm lucid is when I look yes. at my hand or I adjust something. And so I, I become aware of where my hands are as I'm sleeping and also where my hands are in the dreamscape. But there's not as much i don't i have never as far as i can tell i've had it with some drugs but i can never 
I never get confused between awake and asleep in that kind of classic. I know there's some Russian approaches to lucid dreaming where you kind of ask yourself throughout the day, am I awake or am I asleep? You know, is this a dream or, is, or am I awake? And you kind of ask yourself that a few hundred times a day and it, it, it allows you to dissociate and also reminds you to do it when you're asleep because eventually you'll go, oh, wait, this is a dream. So I don't have any of that kind of bleed through. What, what I do find, particularly when you kind of combining journeying or active imagination with dreams, so going back into different things, is it does erupt into weird synchronicities or recurring motifs or random words that people you'll hear when you're on the street that have some match to what happened in the dreamscape. So that certainly happens. And that's kind of the point, really. <laughs> but, what, um, what do you think about the emergence of people reporting, seeing dreamscape stuff in advertising, showing up in ads uh, from Google and stuff like that? That, uh, the trouble <laughs> is, one, there's nothing, I wouldn't put it past some of the underground toys for that to be possible at all but the trouble with that is when you are dealing with a memory of a dream you get a lot of stuff back to front um right. like oh did i dream i saw the ad or like you're not really sure what the match to real life and the memory is right. especially as god if you i mean when i had real jobs the worst thing, you know, those horrible dreams you have about 5 a.m. where you essentially go through a full work day and then the alarm goes off and you go, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I have to actually do it. And, and just dreaming, looking at your uh, inbox and, and all this stuff. That's the truth. And then I saw the ad. I'm like, did you or did you see the ad in the dream? And um, I'm not sure if I'm not sure if people can be reliably sequential when they're matching ads to dreams because it could have gone the other way. Uh, and you know, having, having come from an advertising background, I know in the 20th century there was a lot of work done on on using subliminals and the right kind of colors and the right sound and and the right font to make it to make that low attention processing work. And at that, that point, you essentially over opening up someone's mind and, and dumping, you know, um, buy Pop-Tarts into their unconscious. So it's going to erupt somewhere. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Brene. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So on this also in, let's talk lucidity while you're in what would be dream. What mm -hmm. we're, what we're considering that since these states are so, um, I don't know, interchangeable really in the end. How do you, so when you first started realizing I'm awake in the dream and I'm, I'm going to, I, maybe I'm making an assumption here, but it's, I'm guessing you probably did that quite early on. Sure. Uh, what was that like? What was that experience like? And were you able to harness besides looking at the hands, which is classic. And I, I do that also, um, any techniques for getting, that experience to happen on a habitual level? I'm not sure because I, for me as a kid, it was more the awareness that other people don't do it. So I remember very early primary school, um, which I guess would be elementary school for the Americans, uh, I was watching a, a breakfast TV program where they had some sort of doctor on, on the couch talking to the hosts. 
And he was saying the majority of people dream in black and white. And I'm like, well, I don't. And he went through the list of the kind of, was just talking about dreams and none of them matched me. <laughs> none of them matched me from an experience. <laughs> That's when I realized I kind of, I said that I asked mother about it because she was watching it too. And um, she has, she's an energy healer and the kind of historical, our family history and magic comes down her line. So she's, and she bilocates and, and does all that kind of stuff. So we kind of had a like, no, I dream in color and these things happen and, and so on. I did, I mean, I was doing astral travel in the kind of putting speech marks around it for a reason I'll get to um, in, in high school, using it for weather modification for really spurious reasons um, and essentially using, you know, self-hypnosis techniques to kind of relax the body as much as possible and then get outside the body and fly around and, and what have you. And when you said, like, why I put speech marks around it is astral travel is a effectively silly 19th century term that we only get if we consider the dream and the ima- dreaming and imagination and astral travel and shamanic journeying and the interiority of matter to be different. And I don't think they are. And most indigenous cultures would agree and we only think they are not only do we think the imagination is fake or made up but we also think that it is separate to these other things largely as a result of the kind of cartesian turn that happened with the enlightenment where we just it's a it's a theological argument where we just kind of split mind and matter because that was like okay so mind goes over there with god we won't talk about that matter goes over here with science and then they forget that it was actually a theological argument and all this stuff is gone. But that split was wrong from the very beginning. And you will find in, um, you know, Amazonian or Aboriginal cultures or so on, the dream landscape is not only real. So if you dream you're in the forest, you're in the forest, you're in the interiority or the spirit side or the dreaming of the forest. And this is, kind of born out at all points in time in every other culture except ours around the world. So it just seems to me it's never that like the odds are pretty good given that our guess is provably wrong. The odds are pretty good that there's something to that. So when it comes to the difference with astral travel and dreaming and shamanic journeying and just general use of the imagination, I prefer to think of it as one thing on a spectrum of intensity rather than Oh, was that just a dream? What, what the fuck is just? Um, like, we can't even on a chalkboard explain how the brain creates these interior images. So you can never call something just a dream. It's not an explanation. Um, so you have varying levels of intensity of what I consider to be an experience of like the other side of reality and not in a split sense. So if you look at Aboriginal versions of Aboriginal descriptions of what the dreaming is, it's essentially the interiority of space. So when you say someone has a dreaming or the dreaming of this space is this, they're, they're describing they're describing the interiority of the, the real world. And that's what we would call the spirit realm, I guess. That excellent. That's, um, I pull right up to all this, by the way. And we do, we do, when we get a little more into the woo woo of, of what, what is dreaming and what is reality and what are the differences, that's just seamlessly. Yeah. Did, did, did I hear you right? Or was I thinking off? Uh, you were talking about the, the forest. Were you suggesting that? that one can travel into the dream of the forest? 
Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So you've got like um, cross yeah. bubbles of dreams that everyone that we kind of weave through. So a lot of this we did um, for the premium members at Rune Soup. We did a journeying course last year. I was and, one. I was one. Oh, there you go. Of course. Yeah. So we were relying on. Well, we explored a lot of Eduardo Cohn's work with the Runa Puma in the Amazon. Mm -hmm. And when they, obviously people who live in the Amazon dream a lot about the forest. Makes sense, right? But the way they characterize it is that when you dream about the forest, you are in the forest. There is no separate, there is no astral forest. You're in the forest in a dream state. There's no construct. No, exactly. Mm. Uh, you you experience it differently because, of course, you do because it's the dream state. But you are encountering the dream level of the actual forest, uh, and that is better. I'm just going to say it. That is a better description, and it's not just them. This kind of comes back to the cultural sensitivity thing. Mm. We can't just leap or lean over to the Amazon and pull out the bits we like and plug into capitalist culture. That is literally capitalism. That is harvesting the Amazon <laughs> for the things we want out of it. What we can do is look at it and look at other cultures and find the similarities and look at our own and realize we did have that historically. We did have, not exactly described like that, mm. but it's only since Descartes, essentially, that we stopped seeing the dreams and the imagination as having some level of reality. And that was a mistake. And, and I think we can demonstrate it's, it's a mistake by looking at literally every other culture who didn't make that mistake. And that seems to be the way to do it. That's why I'm very interested. I have Dr. Kripal on the show a bunch of times. I'm very yeah. interested in the kind of comparative approach to the spiritual or the religious, because it, this to me seems like the least worst way of looking at analogy rather than harvesting, which is the 70s neo-shamanist approach, uh, rather than harvesting the bits from indigenous cultures that we like and kind of just putting them up around ourselves. If we look at them and, and look at multiple ones and look at how, how there is a similar level of authenticity available to us, if we go in that direction, that seems to me a better step. And, and an important part of that when it comes to dreaming is to essentially take an Occam's razor approach to all these terms that are all downstream from us getting the mind matter split wrong uh, and say astral travel, shamanic journeying, traveling in a light body, ascending the blah, 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 all these kind of 150 year terms that we've accreted as being separate. Uh, we just level it. We just level the whole thing and go, um, Occam says we start with one. Different levels of intensity, and um, that has been transformative for me personally. That's you kind of roboted out there for a second. We missed what you said right at the beginning. Oh, right at the beginning or the end? Because I can't remember what I said. Beginning of the sentence. Is this a dream? Yeah. <laughs> it could very well be. No, it right was the, right when you were talking Arkham's Razor, right? This last uh, yeah. Um, so we, we have 150 years of different movements, um, the Theosophists, the New Age, um, the kind of ceremonially inspired, getting Kabbalism wrong, 19th century orders, all that kind of things, who've just thrown up all these different terms. Is this astral travel? Is astral travel different to dream? Is which light body are you dreaming in? Like, is this your neshama? Is this all these kind of 
over descriptions that Occam's razor suggests we should level down to one and call it this one thing and experience it as different levels of intensity. Now that might be wrong, but it's a better way of doing it than trying to fit in. Because I did this as a kid when I started doing astral travel, which was different to writing down dreams. And then astral travel split into, well, am I in the astral realm? And is that different to traveling in the physical realm? And you just look at all these arbitrary splits and, and categorizations that are all downstream from the initial error of splitting mind and matter. And that, if you travel upstream and kind of squash that error, then all of a sudden, Western praxis comes into, if not alignment, then at least dialogue with non-Western practices around the world. And we then literally are speaking the same language. And that's been transformative for me. That's been really transformative over the last few years to kind of slide a better metaphysics under practices I've been doing for a long time and, and having them change and improve as a result. I, I think um, the, the terminology can be very confusing, especially if you were a child having these experiences and you go out seeking information yeah. on what it is, you can get very like, oh, am I lucid dreaming? I'm astral. Is, Which, you know, what is this? And it's, yeah. Am I ascending to 5D Earth? Yeah, exactly. And which body am I traveling in? And, right. and is this the astral realm or worse than that? Is it, is it part of the astral realm I built? And is it, and you go, Oh God. Right. <laughs> is it the hijacked one or is it ours? Yeah. <laughs> yeah what, what did you call it? The evil Hogwarts version? Exactly. Mm -hmm. It has been a web and the old material has been so terrible when looking back at some of the dream books and all that, which I do have some on my shelf that... Uh, oh, sure. So I use the term jailbreak, right? <laughs> I use the term jailbreak because when I, you know, I was just sort of ragging on the theosophists for their different astral bodies and, 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 and the description of the astral is separate to this. And like, I get what they're trying to do. I have tremendous sympathy, all of them, like the new age. All, I get what they're trying to do. I just think they were operating from a baseline metaphysics or some foundational principles that weren't sufficiently interrogated. And that seems to me to be a fruitful intellectual task to accompany praxis uh, in the 21st century, because they're doing this stuff effectively before there is anthropology, or if it, if it exists, it's pretty fucking racist. And so there's no real way to... Um, learn in a, in, in a healthier mode from other cultures. And we have that now. Um, well, we, we have the beginnings of that now. And, uh, and, and so I look at them and go, I know, what you, I know what Blavatsky was doing. I know what she was trying to describe. And I almost want to say in a classic chaos magic sense that it, it is better, just do it. If you like pick up theosophical approaches to astral travel or um, Dion Fortune approaches and just do them. Uh, don't describe, don't look at the descriptions underneath it, but just do them. And then we can have the discussion about how that metaphysically fits, um, you know, later. It right. Cause really, it, one doesn't require the other. Right. And it might even turn out that the methodology isn't even that important. It's all about the intent and the energy you put behind it. Sure. For a sure. lot of that stuff. And, so, I mean, and reading, it can get you, you know, spiraling. Oh, I can't do this. Yeah. Whatever. And, you know. And when I was putting the journey and course together, I thought, you know what, I'm going to look at, because I hadn't looked at it for maybe 20 years, but I hadn't looked at Crowley's, in, in his big book for, which I presume I unpacked, but I can't find, um, 
went to look at his description of astral travel in the big blue book. And um, usual, very Crowleyan yoga nonsense. But he said some things, which I actually included in the course, that you could tell he was actually doing it. So he was trying to talk about, well, what happens if you leave your body and you ascend through the ceiling and you perceive it as raining, but then when you wake up and it's not raining, and, and that's, that's a thing that happens. And interestingly, I, you find better models, say, amongst the Runapuma, because you have, you're encountering the spirit side of the air above your house. But he was describing things that you go, okay, so you're doing the same, the, the same speech marks around that thing. Uh, and that was fruitful to me. Same thing with Blavatsky, same thing. They were actually doing it. Uh, what, what we need to do is jailbreak or um, improve the, the metaphysics behind it. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at, particularly when it comes to things like Dream Now. And I probably think at the moment it's maybe the most important thing from a personal transformation perspective is to... I don't want to say assert sovereignty, but take greater responsibility for your dream life, uh, your your experience of dream. It's a third of well, sleep is a third of your life. Dream is less than that, but um, it's a big part of your life. And one of the most transformative things you can do, and you can use whatever method you want for it, is to assert greater responsibility for those experiences. Oh, great. I agree. I agree. I think there's a lot of that. I think or what I actually was thinking was, I think that would be a good uh, approach to magic as well, to start mm-hmm. bringing it all down to some base level and building it back up. Cause there's so many systems that do pretty much the same thing, but just in a different way. And, you know, yeah. You know. And, and I, I think um, that's been the quest over the last 10 years is to find a, a better baseline metaphysics for all of it, because Again, cooking down all the different dream, astral, whatever worlds to the one and calling it the spirit world means, well, now I've also kind of got, as, at least as an hypothesis, the home of the spirits, which is very important when it comes to magic. And again, it brings it back into alignment with non-Western cultures. And as a result, you, you kind of can't not shift the metaphysics that maybe underlines how you do practical enchantment. If, you, if you're trying to do that just to improve dream, because, you know, Terence McKenna, if it's real, it can take the pressure. If, um, if this is real, then it has some implication for this. So it's, it's almost a trick. If you, if, you, if you assert sovereignty over, or at least responsibility over your dream experiences, almost by necessity, you kind of improve your baseline metaphysics for magic. That makes a lot of sense, and, and vice versa, I would imagine, too. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. With all that said, too, will you um, move us through the idea of the magical praxis in your unpacking of a dream, dream imagery that you go through? So the spirit of the wind, the spirit of this place. H- how do you navigate through, through all that when you're trying to unravel? A dream. Or unpack, um, unpack a dream, you mean? Yeah. I was trying not to use unpack. It's overused. Um, I'm not sure. 
I'm not sure I know what you mean. Like, I don't know where the practical enchantment bit is. You can certainly so use dream practical enchantment. But... No, 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 no. When you're, when you're, when you've, when you've, when you're coming out of a dream and say something that was very profound. So a high lucid where you were, the dreamer loves a dream. The dreamer is awake within the dream. Mm-hmm kind of experience of awakening and where it's hard to discern the membrane between here and there. What, so when you do get back to whatever this waking is, how do you personally go about unpacking the, the information? So were you, are you looking at it through like an archetypal level that the spirit of the wind came in and the, are you following? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I am. Um, I'm a bit cruel about it, frankly. So for the most part, I, I consider it archetypal, but I um, I probably use archetypal differently to most people because I sort of stick as close to Red Book Yulm as possible. And when he talks about the archetypes, he's effectively talking about spirits. So, yes, I'm there with um, you on that. Yeah. So I think when you are... In the waking state, I think the model of archetypes and complexes is very useful to analyze what maybe your unconscious is telling you. So that's in the passive approach, uh, in like unpacking your dreams or trying to locate the meaning in your active imagination experiences. If it is a particular encounter, usually if I'm going in to find something, so if I'm going in to do work on a particular part of myself or to unpack further motifs that have emerged from active imagination or beings that I've encountered there, um, I give them the kind of Solomonic treatment, which is um, you have to manifest something in the waking life or um, this is where we part ways. So I probably leave a lot of worthwhile stuff on the table for that. But if I encounter an, like a being that I perceive as separate in these experiences, and however problematic those terms are in a cosmic sense, right? Um, I, in the dream or in the the journey, will insist that something has to happen in the physical, whatever it is we're talking about. So, uh, or whatever it is the encounter is about. I'm like, you have to show up in the waking life for me to take this to the next step. And in a weird way, you can kind of corral beings encounter to generally optimizing probabilities in your life by doing it but i don't tend to sit back and, and endlessly unpack what they might be teaching me or whatever i don't have a lot of time for as in patience rather than time i guess for beings that would come to teach me stuff like that i'll listen if they drop a sack with a dollar sign at my door then you then you can talk to me about whatever um but i'm i'm kind of very um, I, that's basically what I use as a yardstick for the reality or the intensity of dream experiences is it has to erupt in some way into the physical. And you just tell them that. I think it's fair to tell these beings, whatever they are, when you encounter them, that this is an expectation or otherwise jog on and, uh, and, and go from there. It's a bit rough. It is different to the passive thing. Like when I just do active imagination thing, it's just, it's amazing. And it does end up erupting synchronicity into the waking life anyway. But if I'm after a real being uh, or if I'm having 
Or if a real being has an expectation of me, my expectations are equally high. If it wants me to do something in the physical, it has to as well. And, uh, and yeah, I guess that's bringing the magic to it. How do you discern the difference between a real being and um, your own unconscious bits? Again, making it problematic that but it's, we're, yeah. we're viewing them as different. It is that. It's, it's, um, it's what happens in the physical. So that is my one yardstick. Otherwise, they don't. Otherwise, they're parts of my mind. Put them that way. Which again, I think is the same thing. I think it is that spirit realm continuity. But much like going back to what I was saying, where you need different levels of intensity along the one kind of spectrum. Uh, if I want, if a if a being wants to be treated as separate, um, it has to bring something to the table. So that's my one yardstick. Uh, yeah. is that and it's it's a it's a heavy and clunky and rough yardstick mm-hmm. so there are probably more nuanced ways of doing it but that's what i use and you, so you're saying that uh that that your own conscious unconscious cannot change reality Only no i'm saying like what what i'm saying is if it wants something for me it has mm-hmm. to do the same because obviously it can but uh, you just end up an unconscious kind of entity wouldn't do that, is what you're saying. No, it yeah, would, okay. but um, but an unconscious entity that wants to be treated as separate also has to step up. So there are inevitably, if you do magic, or even just read magic books, some of the things you encounter when doing active imagination will be spirits from grimoires or what have you. And for a spirit from a grimoire to for it for me to start treating it as a grimoire spirit rather than a um, thing my mind is using to communicate to my mind Mm -hmm. it has to which i'm not discounting that at all no uh, but it has to do like it has to show up in the wake in the waking world and as i said it's clunky but if you asked that's how i do it and i'm i have no doubt that i'm leaving a bunch of profound encounters on the table but i'm just not really built to care about them like i'd much rather just have some fun dreams Rather than, right. rather than assemble like a team of things inside me to talk to uh, <laughs> when I feel like, like get a diary. I'm going to be with the Council of Nine right now. I'll be back. Yeah, you see, like, I'm the Council like, of Five. And if, and if people want that, like go for it, go for it, go for it. And it's not like there isn't value in doing it, but I, I, I'm still chaos magic to the core, and as a result results themselves uh, are preeminent so if if the mm-hmm. spirit wants something for me um it has to give something and uh and i i don't think enough people in magic do that i don't think they um and again it's looking at other cultures they we just keep feeding please do not feed the animals but we keep doing it yes we'll call something up and feed them and say oh i want this new job and then they don't get yeah. it so you feed them again you starve them <laughs> what the hell <laughs> Uh, and that's that kind of modern devotionalism. And you will, you will not find that in Polynesian spirit workers. You will not find that anywhere. Like these, uh, these aren't, they don't, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, yes, it might seem a bit like. Slavery. Well, it's not slavery. It's. Um, uh, it seems like slavery. I mean, to, to a Western palate, it seems like slavery. Maybe I think it's like people who people who deal with animals or hunters 
or you know people who live in a kind of non-western way like assume that there's some kind of politeness and, and assume the general the kindness of strangers if you will and that's just not a good way of seeing them more than human yeah i wasn't saying i'm like that that's just i think a lot of people yeah. are like that yeah yes and um and it, you'll get night and day differences in in the actual results of spirit interactions if you you don't have to bully them all and eventually you build up working relationships with certain ones and it doesn't need to happen that way but it, but kind of bringing making the unconscious conscious and then making the conscious physical so the extra step onto jung mm. requires a jump where they have to bring something to the physical mm. yeah on this, this is this ties in, and so I'm curious about what your ideas are around, and also your experiences of déjà vu as a client <laughs> of this. Oh God, um, I get it all the time, yes. uh, <laughs> and. It's generally, and it's weird, like you can kind of just go full matrix on this and go, when you have a deja vu experience, there are a number of different ways you can interpret them. You know, Jung had his and so on. For me, it's generally a moment to pay attention. So what's going, why is this a deja vu experience? Did I dream this? And often you can, like my, my dream clairvoyance is, is very unreliable. I will years out dream useless things like, turning around after putting the dishwasher on and picking something up and let you just go, why did, why did I dream that five years out in another country? Yes. And you know, you did. And you like my <laughs> partner, like he has to deal with this all the time. We'll just be doing something really prosaic. And I'll be like, Oh, I dreamt this. I said, why, why did I dream <laughs> turning the corner with my trolley in the supermarket? But I did. Um, and so it's usually just a moment to pay attention. If you have a deja vu experience, I don't treat it as, anything other than like an amber light not like in a warning sense but like okay pay attention um or, or something's paying attention because you do the trouble with and it's the same for all kind of magic and really anything you can i don't want to say fall into delusion that's maybe a bit too strong a word but it's so easy to get distracted by your own fixations and because it's really interesting stuff and it's so easy to get distracted by it so you it's it almost comes back to kind of treating the spirits with a stick um so easy to get distracted by it because it's really cool and interesting and, and what have you and you shouldn't because you've got stuff to do and and uh i get deja vu experiences all the time and to the point where i briefly thought maybe you should maybe you should get tested neurologically or something uh but they're just generally moments of for me, treat them as moments of being more aware of either what I was thinking or what I'm doing. And, and as a result, they're kind of different every time, I guess, is a way of describing it. I haven't been asked that before, but I like it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to, to ponder in and amongst all of this. I'm wondering also about your ideas of, so this, this is, of course, I believe, I don't, I don't want to say this. I, time continuum and point to point as in point now reality with memories and dream recall memories and dreams what's the difference what do you see as the difference between all of that that gets so murky yeah, well that's 
the trouble and and my soul for deja vu is that or even the fact that i dreamt stuff prosaic things right that have then subsequently happened is it's quite clear that we don't have time correct and that is not a controversial statement that is what the majority of physicists will tell you yes so this is my challenge like why you can't do much with deja vu is essentially that it's essentially well it's the same thing with are you pulling results in magic are you pulling results from the future are you pulling from a different future we don't actually know there all we know is that there is some almost like a wave function collapse or some overlap in space time between your intention during practical enchantment and its subsequent fulfillment and even Subsequent is the wrong word there. So it is challenging. Um, and the only thing you can really do is, is run multiple models at once and don't take, don't build your metaphysics based on it. So you can't use deja vu as a, you can't use deja vu for anything more than it is because we haven't even got time correct. But it's a really good question. And the, in, in this whole general area, when it comes to um, divination, when it comes to practical enchantment, we have to bear in mind that we experience time in a way that is very different to how time probably is. And, uh, and that's an extra layer of, of navigation. And it's good. Like, it keeps you sane, theoretically, to be able to uh, never land and, and fixate on one particular explanation. I mean, there probably is, maybe not one, but there, there probably is ultimately an explanation for how all this works, but we're centuries of it, and, and, and time is a critical component of it. What do you think that... Um, okay, so this is kind of, again, it's all esoteric, really, in the end. Sure. Um, what do you think this this nowness is since we're, we're here we're focused on each other we're having a conversation and so there's this acuteness to it there's this palpable experience we're having which we can have also as you know in in what we consider dreaming and um where it feels as real as this what what is this that we have consciousness focused here now well, I think you just described it there at the end. So it's probably a much like the intensity along the spectrum of of dream encounters or dream experience. It's probably a uh, intensity of consciousness at this particular um, part of the surface of space time. So. If you can, let, let's do it this way. If you conceive of the entire universe as some sort of organism that is experiencing itself, which includes time, it's, that's its whole purpose is experience. So if experience can be an intensity or a dialing up of consciousness at that particular surface of space-time. So that's what I think it is. And, also, and it would also kind of explain how an intensity of consciousness can pull things from space-time, there's almost like a gravity effect to it, right? Like if you're pushing down on the surface of the universe with this level of intensity, it may pull things in. It's one way of thinking about it, but I think that's essentially it. I think you um, peak experiences or even just experiences that you are focusing intently on like now is, is an intensity of, of consciousness, which is the whole universe, but an intensity of consciousness mm -hmm. in that particular 
the um, bit of space time. Almost like a focused. Yeah, there's that theme. whole. Yeah. <laughs> there's that whole bit with active imagination, and it's coming from the Jungian, long time mm-hmm. Jungian era, um, that where people are dream, they're layering their dream images on. I can't think of who wrote this book. You probably know Gordon. Um, wrote the book on laying out your dreams on a walk, right? So this bit of sidewalk is this bit of that dream. And, um, and somehow I love that. Yeah. I know. know I I can't remember the book, but, um, well, this, uh, again, coming, kind of coming back to the journey in course, it will turn, we might think of the 20th century as, as Jung's century, but I, I still think the 21st century is it because yeah. <laughs> what he did with the Red Book, which we only got in 2006, right? We just got it, yeah. Um, There's more coming. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. but that is the most important book on magic in the 20th century by miles. Wholeheartedly agree. And his... Because a lot of the stuff that he was thinking with, you will find in the publicly available Jungian stuff. I mean, depending on where you get him in his actual lifetime, he kind of changes how he describes the collective unconscious and the archetypes. And that's normal. Like he's, mm-hmm. he's kind of building his metaphysics. You get the same thing with Crowley um, and Crowley's worldview. Mm-hmm. What the revolution behind the Red Book is, or was, is making physical the unconscious. It's that jump that we were just talking about. Yes. You, making the unconscious conscious, you will get in depth psychology and is profound and, and useful and everyone should do it, right? Yes. Making that the unconscious conscious and physical in the real world is what the Red Book is. It's his art project based on his journeys through the spirit world. Now, why that's so significant is that again going back to say for instance australian aboriginal cultures when they wake in some aboriginal cultures if you wake up from a dream you ritualize so how we remember or write down dreams you will ritualize what happened to you during the dream so that the waking world knows that you are a person that operates in both worlds so you might compose a song or even just a little whistle or or what have you but, but it will be inspired by what has just happened to you in the dream? And, uh, and these uh, Australian Aboriginal cultures, as I said, all this continually practicing on earth, unbelievably good at telepathy and understanding dimensionality and, and all this kind of, like their consciousness game is off the charts, by and large. Um, they don't have a Vatican fucking with them. Well, they don't have any of that stuff. Right. But um, Jung is doing a early 20th century Austrian swiss version of that he built a tower he painted all these things he brought the unconscious into the physical that is and he had poltergeist effects because of it like he haunted that tower accidentally (laughs) this is what happens and uh and that he landed on something which we had lost not just with descartes but a very long time ago which is there in the uh, oldest and kind of like least trammeled um, existing cultures that we find around the planet. So I think the 21st century, if we give the Red Book to enough magically operant people and say, 
understand what you are seeing here. This is a physicalization of the spirit world, and it's also a map for you to do the same. Yes. And watch what will happen to your life if you do that. And you don't have to be, I mean, he's so good at it. Like he would just sit at his desk and essentially be in the spirit world. I yes. have a whole bunch of rigmarole I have to go through <laughs> to get that to work. But nevertheless, you can, and you bring stuff out and, and you manifest it in the sense that you make it real. This, the farm, to some extent, is that for me? Mm-hmm. Um, and it will profoundly change your life. And there is something hugely philosophically significant about that. And it speaks to the spirit world trying to encounter us and us trying to encounter the spirit world. And when that happens, so divided for the chance of union, mm-hmm. when that happens is probably, if there is a point to the universe, it's probably that in all its manifestations, sex, love, mm-hmm. art, all of it. It is probably the spirit world encountering us and us encountering the spirit world is probably the point. So I think the 21st century, I think Jung transformed the 20th century and I think he might transform the 21st as well, which is not bad going. (laughs) Um, To kind of double (laughs) transform like two centuries, especially when you died 30 years before this one began, 40 years before this one began, 30. He died in the 60s, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. Was it 67, maybe? Yeah. His In the Red Book, The Call to the Soul is one of the most beautiful things I have ever read in my life. I defy anyone oh. to, yeah, I defy <laughs> anyone to get through that and not go, what did I, yeah. <laughs> what like, have I been reading before I, I found this thing? It's, everything's been junk. <laughs> I know, it's amazing. Also, the sermons to the dead. Um, oh, we could yeah. just carry on here about Jung forever and ever. I love him so much. I um, I want to move into, on the same thread where we are, I want to get your ideas on the process of dying and then what is death. Now, we know that it's related to birth and this zero point kind of experience because they're both membranes in, in essence. But what do you... What do you, what's your insight here, Gordon? Um, I don't know. I, like, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Uh, Nor do I, but this is like, it's still, it's something, right? It's, so if we're in a dream and all of a sudden we have an encounter with death, it's for me, of course, I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I'm actually dreaming and this is a lucid moment where I can mm-hmm. push into that. But it, it's such a major thing in Western culture, which is what I'm part of, sure. right? And how much repression has come around it from the Victorian period on, maybe even back further, but they were more in touch with it because they dealt with the bodies, yep, right? Sure. When we stopped dealing with the bodies. Um, That's a good point. I think um, I have... This comes back to the becoming invincible thing, right? So you have to have an encounter that makes you realize that on a personal and visceral level, it's not the end. And there are a bunch of ways you can do that. It doesn't really matter. I guess my persistent thoughts around this are when, say, my close friends or whatever experience a tragedy. So their mother dies or, or something. And I look at them with this, this sense of horror and panic because... Um, they haven't processed that their mother still exists. It's a weird way of thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, wow, I, just, I love I, that. 
I feel they're upset because they're actually not sure if she still exists. Yes. I find that horrifying because she does. And I can't just say that to someone who's grieving. I mean, obviously I do. But you can't just say that because it doesn't work. And so I have this horror. And it's interesting you mentioned, like, not being with the bodies. And it's the Victorians, and crucially Victorian Protestants, because um, Catholics are kind of dirtier and more visceral and, and used to this kind of stuff. So it kind of depends where you grew up in the West as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. That, that sort of Protestant squeamishness about these things. And I just have, it's for me, it's so important. And I, I tell people, so I have, an, I have an approach to death when people who aren't magically operant experience a tragedy, which is I tell them it's going to be shit, like your mother or your father or whoever it is still exists. You probably... Like, it's a nice thing for you to hear now, but I don't know if you're there yet. Doesn't matter. It's still going to feel shit for at least the next six months, and you should mm-hmm. just go with that. Like, there's no... The, the reality of his or her continuity is what it is. You're still going to have the worst six months of your life now. Mm-hmm. And just what happens. And uh, when you are ready towards the end of it, we'll have a chat. And I can think people, like the right kind of people, I can think them or logic them to where we are. There's sort of four or five books that I say, don't read them now. Um, just feel bad for six months. Mm-hmm. But then when you're ready, we will have a talk. And there are some great books out there on after-death communication and near-death experience and all this kind of stuff. So you can kind of accumulate data once the sadness is sufficiently diminished. And that's the best I've got for how to deal with death as a kind of as someone who's magically operant, in many respects, it is our responsibility. And they intuitively know they come to us yes. when they have these, tra- these tragedies. And, and so that's kind of my medicine. Mm-hmm. I would love to do something better. I would love to like, right off to the jungle, let's go and, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but you kind of can't do that. And you also have to let grief do its course. I think about it a lot. I don't know what the cosmic significance of death is because, um, it's a thing the universe wants to experience. And it, yes. for me, it's, it's been made small. Like I'm not that bothered about death. Um, I'm not at all. I've, yeah. There's no fear so, there at all. Exactly. So I, I kind of struggle to have normal human conversations about it. Uh, and, and as a result, I thought I have a kind of very specific process when loved ones are experiencing tragedy as, as to how what I think we can do to help them because you can't just go guns blazing in and say, your mother still exists, this and this and this. It's not, it's, it's literally the worst time. So you just have to tell them they're allowed to feel bad for six months. Well, they're allowed to feel bad forever, but like it is going to feel bad, terrible for six months. And uh, towards the end of it, when you're ready to process it, we will process it in a healthy and holistic way. Uh, And that's all I can do because I don't think about death that much. As, a, as, as being of cosmic significance because it's just always there. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a constant companion in a way. Yeah, sure. So what is the, um, and I did say since the Victorians, because the Victorians laid them out. You, you're, yeah. you know, you were, they're the parlor, they're on the kitchen table, the dead are there, we're weaving their hair into wreaths and we're mourning them as a, as a culture in the West until, until we get past that period. I, 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 we've lost something really profound um, by separating us from the physicality of it. And I actually think it makes death smaller when you encounter corpses. Yes. You're, you're aware that whoever it is isn't in there anymore. Like you just, <laughs> it's you just feel the it. body. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a and, husk. It really just looks like a husk yeah. to me. 
and 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 we've we've missed so much um by by doing that so uh when i was in when i was in los angeles um last year giving a talk um our talk was emceed um by someone who's very vigorously into kind of rethinking our funeral practices and, and natural burial and all this kind of cool crap which i think mm-hmm. we should be doing yeah and it would be wonderful yeah it would be wonderful if we could do that that's potentially a kind of crypto magic uh movement so the people who are involved in in improving our psychological understanding of death by making us encounter it, making us encounter bodies and, and actually talking about things like natural burial and the funeral industry, the funeral industrial complex, she calls it. Um, we can kind of sneak magic in by getting involved and kind of and agitating for those discussions because um, it's, it's laws and things now that are preventing people from yeah. having... And and they're such demonic laws because this is this is a birthright. This is a yes. birthright to encounter death. So it would be if at all you can get involved with that kind of stuff in your area, um, promoting essentially a, a healthier cultural approach to the physicality of death, you're kind of secretly doing the work of magic, even yeah. if you know, even if it's not overtly so. I've been um I've I've been granted access to i've been around a lot of death and been around a lot of very cool modern which are really ancient ways of putting people uh to rest natural burials and stuff and my friend's mother just died last week and she got she they were she was cremated but she asked for the bones that they not crushed them down you know because when you get the remains they have crushed them down so she she sent me a picture of these just amazing the big large bones the femurs and stuff cool to to work with she's an artist so she's gonna do some sort of great art i'm sure with them um there's a new company that's that's making uh, diamonds out of bones yeah they've been doing that for a while and any kind of gemstone and you can add other carbon if you don't have enough like hair to it cool yeah, there's good stuff going on. What do you think? Okay, so on this train that we're on, so for you personally, when so the state of after death. So mm-hmm. this is obviously a shift in consciousness. Or sure. it's a it's a shift in where where we are focused, right? So we're not now, you're not focused now in the in the Gordon experience. You're focused in whatever whatever you are that's not attached to your your body, your shell, your vessel, your car. Is that any way similar to how we experience dreaming as you see I it from here? Identical. Like I, I, I think it's more of falling away of this consciousness. Like I think we're permanently in that consciousness anyway. Yeah. It's just that this one, um, this one is very distracting when you're in it. So I think it's more of falling away of that. That being said, what is interesting from my own kind of encounters with spirits of the dead and some of the work, um, some of the journey work and whatever around this, it kind of comes back to we haven't got time correct because there there are sort of multiple survivals. There is a survival of the personality of you, um, even if it isn't, you know, these are all problematic terms, but even if it isn't your kind of like soul or like the core essence of you, there is essentially a permanent survival of you in some spirit realm sense. And how I've had that explained to me as working is because we haven't got time correct. 
again because you're kind of eternally here. Um, so there is a permanent version that is still you that is one aspect of your survival. It's not, I tend not to talk about it because um, I'm not sure I like it <laughs> for one, but two, um, it is cleaner. There is something about you that survives that is closer to a kind of classic description of soul or consciousness that is more like what you just said, Nish, that it's, it is a permanent change of consciousness into like that coming home experience. And that's generally what it feels like. It's my, my understanding of it is more of, of it being a falling away, but nevertheless, the you that is you right now has some sort of continued existence as well. Uh, and like, this shouldn't be that surprising, even in, kind of like early Christian theology, you have more, the difference between a soul and a spirit and a personality as, as separate things is sort of fairly well picked over. You find the same thing in Egypt and Greece and basically everywhere, that there are multiple components to you that will survive in different ways following your bodily death. Um, but it's, it's almost like, what's the end game in thinking with these ideas is this going to unless you specialize in it which is fine you could you know be a medium you could be a magically operant funeral director whatever um, but for the normal person or the person who has jobs that aren't that it's almost for me the binary of it doesn't really matter once you know that there is survival after death um this kind of diminishing returns from getting more and more detailed about it, I guess, is, is generally how I think about it. It's that hyper chaos magic pragmatism, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it ties into that whole practice of walking through doorway. We, we talked about this earlier. I'm dreaming now, that whole impression sure. thing. And, um, and, and, and then in ritual praxis too, the whole idea of eating or feeding from your own death, right? Sure. There's that meditative aspect and ritualizing through that that somehow I think also makes it very small. I like the idea of that, Gordon. Making it small, yeah, me yes. too. Um, that that because it 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 is in the end. Yeah, it's like going to sleep and waking up again. I mean, it pretty much need to be anymore. I think we get tied into the physicality of pain and suffering on our. So when one thinks about one's death, I. I personally don't like the idea of having, I don't like pain. You know, I'm not one of those people. Sure. A bloody death, you know, no, thank you. I'm not going to dream that kind of thing. So I think that we, we can, we see these, these things can be a trap. They can, or, they absolutely can. Uh, yeah. And I mean, the good news, if you do end up having a painful death is that when it is, it's, it's one of those weird esoteric things that seems to be true and is, is born out in, you, you kind of get this impression even from something like the Tibetan Book of the Dead, but um, there doesn't appear to be as much pain as you might think when people die what we would perceive to be painful death. So if you experience something, you get attacked by a shark. Um, if it doesn't kill you, it's probably painful. But yeah. if it does, there is something, something happens when it is your time. Yes. That, dampens the pain which is good if you think like oh i uh, like you i don't think anyone likes pain it's like well i don't want to die in some sort of spectacular painful fashion <laughs> yeah right was, but uh, you can see how it's a trap though where we will yes. people totally. fixate on these things there was yeah. a tv show years ago called dead like me where a girl was 
after dying a, a painful death, um, chosen as a, a reaper type, which pulls the person's soul out of their body right before they're about to have a painful death. That's essentially, if it's not being pulled out, that's essentially one of the techniques they kind of talk to you about in like the Tibetan Book of the Dead, mm-hmm. which is if you know it's happening. So if you're in a crashing plane, like they're kind of trained to sort of eject themselves from the top of their head. And that does appear to be what happens for people who come back from these experiences. Or if you get a particularly good medium, which happened to, um, so my, one of my little brother's friends died tragically when I think he was about 13 or 14, fell off a cliff. And again, we were the magic people. So um, mother took his mother, this dead kid's mother, to a particularly good clairvoyant um, who was very descriptive about how that happened. And it was the classic story of describing his uncle who'd also passed by then, who was kind of there essentially at the bottom of the cliff. It's a bit squeamish, but like there was no pain at the impact. There was someone waiting for him, all that kind of thing, which makes you... I guess kind of coming back to what you, um, what Nisha's question about the sort of wider met- metaphysics of death, I'm actually fairly, what's the word, literal, or there, there's a real topology or topography to the afterlife and, and some fairly real things that come with dying. And that includes, and they're classic encounters. So it is, a grandparent or, or, or a relative or whatever it happens to be who's involved in your kind of moving to the afterlife. That's born out around the world, but also kind of born out from a whole bunch of psi research and so on. We have this idea, if you haven't examined it, it comes from the 19th century, a bit 18th, but mostly 19th, that there's kind of like a more scientific way of thinking about the afterlife where you just sort of dissolve into this kind of white light <laughs> God, I just kind of hang. If you don't interrogate, people somehow think that's more sophisticated than being quite literal about the movement of, of spirits into the afterlife. And it's not. And it literally um, emerged as a way to try and save heaven in, in essentially Protestant England from the appearance of electricity and the rise of materialism. So, religion kind of played this dodge game of trying to sound sciency and say, well, maybe, maybe it's a, a, a florid and metaphorical description that heaven is an actual garden and your grandparents are there and so on. But, you know, maybe it's this. And it, it was this attempt to try and keep the idea, and it was a bad move to try and keep the idea of making it sound sort of 19th century sciency that we just kind of dissolve into this white light of God. That's not in the theology. That is not in anyone's experience of the spirit world anywhere in the world. And funnily enough, if you get people who are open to the idea of an afterlife, that seems to be their default mode. They seem to think that sounds more adult. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it is a ridiculous piece of shit, 19th century idea. And, uh, and, and it's one of the funny things that you kind of have to navigate if you are the magic person in, in your group of friends is to be like, no, it's not like that. That sounds boring. That sounds truly horrible. Yes. Are you describing hell? That's awful. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take nothing over that. <laughs> I... I... I'll be surprised if you've ever heard of this, but have you heard of the people who talk about the false light and how the whole death, the, the right after death uh, experience that you have is somewhat of a construct to like hijack your soul? Um, I haven't heard ex- exactly that, mm. but uh, I would, not everyone makes it cleanly there. And that's why I think 
you like my my brother's friend who died had his uncle waiting for him when he when he was deceased you this is the kind of more mm, terrifying implication of say the ancient egyptian beliefs which is it's fucking treacherous to mm -hmm. to get to the other side you need to know magic you need to have the right words you need people to help you it's not just a, a judgment component and and if uh, again you look around the world and i think this is a kind of function of ancestor practices uh, which are effectively probably our oldest spiritual beliefs right um, as a planet probably up to a third of and if you consider that we we have almost a unconscious in the west we unconsciously know this and 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 seek to remedy it in a ritual fashion we have requiem masses we have masses for the dead we have all these things that we do to that is a that is a behavioral or ritual match to prior cultures and so going backwards in time and also going horizontally. So like I haven't heard of exactly the false light situation, but yeah, that is a, that is a risk factor involved in dying that uh, you might get lost along the way. But that gets brought out by a spirit world model. There are other things out there, right? Absolutely. Yes. And, and they may, may even be obstacles we set up for ourselves because we're not ready or they're set up for us exactly. because we're, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I agree. But all that said, the, like the Egyptian Book of the Dead is quite juicy with, you know, you've got to get past those scary snakes and the alligators. Oh, yeah. And I mean, there's really quite a lot there that's, um, that it, it's wonderful to read and it's fantastic magically. But it, if you were to ponder on it um, obsessively, you know, could also be, again, more of that trap that one puts yeah. around the whole process. If you are expecting that, mm -hmm. uh, then you will probably create that. Yes. When you die. Uh, and it is a difficult thing. You can only make the macro statement that the Egyptians did not think it was a foregone conclusion that you would get to what we would call heaven, like there were yeah. steps to go through. And that's probably correct. And it's a very spiritually and unsurprisingly and, and psychologically mature way of, of thinking about it. Uh, and also approaching it. But if you, as you say, you can get a bit obsessed with it. And also the Book of the Dead is an individualized document. So yes, yes. it might be that certain people only needed certain things and that may have to do with their um, their particular natal chart and, and so on. So if you try to kind of bundle it all together and go, well, this looks treacherous, it, it only looks that treacherous in aggregate. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at an individual person, they might only have 20 spells or um or 50 rather than the whole 118 or whatever it is <laughs> so um i i mean i think i lost my train of thought it just literally <laughs> went off like a sheet being did, pulled away from me did we do the horoscope uh, just, uh, astrology yet we what? haven't there you go you're a gemini what nope. is your sign? No. No, sun sign cancer. Cancer. Mm. What's your rising? Scorpio. Okay. I find the risings the more, of, of these, just the base level stuff, the more significant. Scorpio. Same. Um, so, like, because it kind of gives you a trajectory. But yes. Right. Mm. Are you by chance RH negative? 
you know, all uh, that no. stuff going on. Yeah, I do. Um, no, I'm not. I don't think. Um, I can't even remember. I know Mother is, but I'm not. What do you think about all of that chatter around that? Um, one of the other things we haven't got right is gene- is genetics, um, is genes and DNA. Like, we've just got it wrong. And we've got it wrong because it's emerging from this materialist idea that they somehow are destiny or that they power, like, the subsequent expression. And they don't. As Dr. Sheldrake points out, the DNA codes for protein. That's what it does. The, mm-hmm. the rest of it is not. Um, the rest of it is, is materialist jibber-jabber. Um, nevertheless, genes exist, DNA exists, they yeah. have some kind of function. So there is none of the stuff I've seen about RH negative looks like anunnaki, blah, 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 whatever. Mm-hmm. Right? But that's not to say that there aren't fingerprints of our highly unusual journey as a species available in our blood and in our DNA, the DNA itself. But like our DNA, I had a, a guest on uh, Dr. Wick Rummersing quite recently talking about viruses from space and how great chunks of our genetic code is retroviral in origin. And those viruses came from space. So you are literally built of space viruses. <laughs> and that is, again, one of those well, semi-controversial, but not that controversial anymore, a statement. Which is why when you come, when we talk about different blood groups and what they may indicate, as a general rule, I don't think anyone's doing a particularly nuanced job of having those discussions. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that like our really bizarre origins aren't there in fingerprint form in, in our blood and in our DNA for sure. Well, I've always wondered with this, this particular discussion, if we're looking at the broader stroke of things esoterically and we are not our shells, right? We are not our yeah. vessels. We are not our blood. Um, what does it matter then beyond, beyond some of the stuff that we navigate in this kind of waking fleshly existence we're having with like predisposition towards this or that? I agree. I think um, when you go down the, the magical blood route, particularly in occultism, you end up in Julius Evola and Nazis and, and what have you. You do. And we've done that. Like that's, that happened to magic in the last 150 years. Uh, so I agree. I don't know it, to some extent what's the point. Like, are you trying to say RH negative is special in these discussions? Like you go, where, where, where does this end? Where are you going <laughs> with a discussion about what is the magical blood type and what is it? And I agree completely. Yeah. I think the only thing you can learn it, well, you could probably learn a bunch. I think the most useful thing you can learn is an ultimate origin. So not of a particular bloodline or anything, but the fact that we appear to have been deliberately built out of a pig and a chimp, for instance, is weird. It's weird to me. Uh, and it's, it's weird <laughs> yes. that it matches to like, it half matches to maybe a couple of like Sumerian versions of how humans are made of like God blood and dirt. And, and so, and you go, that's weird. Uh, and so I think there is an ultimate origin story or fingerprints of an ultimate origin story in blood and genetics and so on. But yes, if you take it down to the next level and try to go, oh, well, we're descended from the Salutrians and they wore capes and they spoke to these guys. And actually there's a kind of, 
unlovely racialism in, in, in looking at it too deeply, like who has the Anunnaki blood and who doesn't and whatever is, it's, it's not a conversation that I think is particularly uh, fruitful. Cool, cool. I had a question, but you were talking about <clears throat> uh, being influenced by the invisibles. Sure. As, as, as a youngling, um, did you have any notion of its, of it being a hypersigil when you were reading it? Did you get any feel of that? Like all stuff that Morrison talks about in its construction, you would no. read it before you saw that now. So that's interesting. No, no. You know. um, and I actually didn't finish it until college. So I read the first bits as individuals, but um, it was only when they started around 2000, uh, or whenever the first kind of like, not even bundles came out, was when I completed it. So mm. I read a bit as a teenager, but then it was essentially at university and I didn't get any of that kind of stuff, but I was so into it. I, like that was the nineties is like the chaos magic decade, right? The whole thing. I was so, I was doing postmodernism at university. And so I was really enjoying like, you know, the combination of Foucault and Pete Carroll and Grant Morrison and, and, and just that kind of, Explosion, yeah, and 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 the metaphysics has moved on since then, but that kind of dial-up beginning of the internet, IRC, um, use kind of thing, use like net, it, yeah, net, it's yeah, all yeah. like that. That is that's Grant Morrison for me, and it obviously had a had a long-term impact. And what I think he hasn't really acknowledged um, is. It's very conspiratorial and conspiratorial in a way that's turned out to kind of be correct. So he was unaware of, say, the Stargate program when he's writing these books, but the Invisibles have um, underground military bases using psi technology and, and communicating with extra-dimensional entities. And yes, these are all uh, comic tropes for the kind of hero story that he's creating. So to some extent you can go, well, yeah, that's who the bad guys are in a comic world like the Invisibles. Sure. Nevertheless, it also appears to have happened. And so I just wonder that there is the weird combination, at least for me, when you study how power works in the world and its relationship to magic, um, I, I see the Foucault and Grant Morrison 90s influence on areas of subsequent inquiry once I reached adulthood. Um, and I think that's in there, and I don't know if Grant Morrison's acknowledged it. If you watch that documentary about him where he said he's, you know, he grew up and his parents were anti-war activists and all that kind of you know, right, good right, stuff, right. that's fine. You, you, you're a sane person if you are an anti-war activist ever, but like, you know, during times of increased nuclear risk, like now and then, that's correct. But it was, it's more than that. Like the, there's some really interesting military industrial complex and, and magic and control and psi that is, I wonder if he was not, um, it, remote viewing is not the correct word, but I wonder if he wasn't describing something real rather than creating something, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And in a virtual realm of some sort. Exactly, exactly. Which brings me back to the astral realm. Um, you were, I wasn't sure if you were saying it's part of that spectrum of intensity. Yeah. That I it, don't even use the word astral anymore. I use dream or journeying or spirit world. Mm -hmm. Like, um, 
it's just cleaner to as long as you declare at the beginning mm-hmm. like this is the word i'm using for the whole thing because otherwise people ask well what about your light body or what about this so i don't even use astral you can you can use whatever you want but mm-hmm. dream realm is also the spirit realm is the astral realm yes. is the priority of matter so just pick a term use one <laughs> okay. we've really tried to dis to, to stick with that too and lucidity yeah. lucid is kind of our key but I, some people come on and and those terms are still around astral projection and all that and, and again it, as long as it's coherent like yes yeah. As long as it's coherent and as long as you're not trying to bolt on additional over descriptions, then go for it. But yeah. yes, we just declare at the front, we call it dream realm. Mm-hmm. It also sets you up for better or for worse, or for better and for worse. It also, I think, puts you in the right position of, of humility and um, parsimony when it comes to subsequently digesting the experiences mm-hmm. because there is a there is a kind of dramatic almost truth claim behind saying i'm astral traveling rather than i'm dreaming or i'm in the dream realm like you i, I feel like you know in a healthier position to see all the edges of your encounters if you call it something smaller and more humble than highfalutin I'm in the astral realm. I'm I'm traveling in my diamond body to Mars, and uh, like, <laughs> my Mercado vehicle. Are. Maybe you are. <laughs> Maybe you're dreaming. You know? well, in these in discussions, you know, you do have to greet people with their their terminology often, sure. and so it, it it. But it is it is so it's murky, and I, I like the cutting back that's happened as we're evolving. So, this. So- I just have one more question. I'm sorry. The, um, no, so if, this, if the astral experience is more of an intensity level of dreaming, what then is the aboriginal dream time? Is that not the same thing? The dream time is, and I, uh, it confuses people, confused me. I was so disappointed when I found out it wasn't um, what I initially thought it was. As we I'm probably assume, about to be now, right? Yeah. We assume the dream <laughs> time is, is like, Zeptepi or or the the original creation event and from that everything flows so because it's got time in it we think uh everything comes from the dream time but the uh the dream time is you better to think of it as the spirit world it's more a flow model so you'll find i use the word dreaming instead um do you have a dreaming or, you know, to explore the dreaming because that gives it its um, presentness. Now, where that gets confusing in flow models is everything received its dreaming, so its flow during the dream time, but the dream time is also a place, so it's, it's the spirit world. Um, but I was so disappointed because I thought, oh, this is really cool. It's like the, the first, it's like a Sumerian creation story where the entire cosmos is is dreamed into existence at a time called the dream time and that's what people think it is because that sounds really cool but it's um it's actually better than that and and like all good i guess metaphysical models it it has more nuance Um, and so you you typically it's an older term and typically people will now use the dreaming um instead because i think it well it confused me (laughs) Um, 
Yeah. It, no, that, no, it's good to know. And is this something that non-Aboriginals can get into? Is it strictly a cultural thing, or is it universal? Yeah. Um, you can, and mother's actually done this, so there is nothing preventing uh, people from within a particular Aboriginal nation from experiencing the dreaming, and in particular experiencing specific dreamings that they can guide you through. And so my mother's actually been out in the desert and, and, and done that with Aboriginal women's groups and so on. So there's, there's nothing about it that isn't invitational, but that doesn't mean it's universal in the sense that anyone can, can pick it up and wonder with it. Again, it comes back to here is probably the most sophisticated and definitely oldest way of thinking with the combination of time and the dream world and, and, and spirits, and we can learn what we can from it and, and, and use that as inspiration for our own models is, is, I think, the way to do it. Unless you definitely want to go out into the desert and, like, learn that stuff. That genuinely, yeah, it, it's not cut off at, at all. It's the absolute opposite. They're very um, – it's been my experience. I'm actually going out there next month. Um, Hey, it's been months. Don't need it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wish, but don't need it. Um, it's been my experience of different Aboriginal groups that they're very happy that these ideas are. It's it's the time for them. They're, they're very happy that these ideas are spreading. Um, so, in that sense, it's good. And and you're not doing. You're not stepping on toes if you start calling yourself a clever man which is there is is the kind of slang term for shaman mm -hmm. now then you're getting appropriative right but there's nothing at all they're very happy that the world is interested in in their cosmology yeah, i think even uh, netflix put out a show called clever man about yeah 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 it's good yeah, yeah well, I, I started watching it um, yeah it's um yeah, yeah. No, it's good uh someone from the in the chat asked uh, your thoughts or what are your thoughts about Jack Parsons? Um, if any. Hey, he's fascinating. I agree. Um, I've, I have a tremendous affection for Jack. Uh, we, I've written a whole bunch about it. And actually there's, there's a bit in sort of starships about what I think one of the things that happened during the 20th century. And, and Jack is a cornerstone in that story is essentially contact with, a collection of entities that decided to very quickly make us spacefaring. And, and a big part of that, there's sort of several pivot points to it. One of them is, of course, the reception of the Book of the Law. But because of that, you also have Jack Parsons and solid-state fuel and, and so on. And there's basically no way we would have got into space as fast as we did had those things not happened. So um, I, I have tremendous affection for Jack, and I think he's part of a very important story. As for his uh inspired writing oh patchy yeah. some of it's some of it is worth your time some of it isn't uh pete, Car uh, pete carroll peter gray has a whole bit about it in in the red goddess which i think is quite a good treatment of jack's contribution i guess if you will to western magic is a separate thing to what i was just discussing i'll get i will check out the book red goddess and her yeah, I find it interesting, and I find that a lot of um, a lot of a lot of space travel and a lot of things we're dealing with now, <clears throat> excuse me, in our culture seem to be 
originate have originated from 1947. Yeah, absolutely. That was a um, a very curious power vacuum year. Yeah, and I'm tr- I'm trying to figure out why. What happened? What is it about that year and whatever you know? Is it the astrology of the year? It is it the the I don't, I think I don't know. Stuff, I think enough stuff was moved around the board that it kind of got the attention of of other things. So, um, nuclear weapons and just the general rearranging and, and power vacuum and and kind of pivot in direction of of what was a priority um, conceptually and, and technologically had a. There was a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? The universe responded to that rearrangement of, of priorities in, in a post-nuclear age. And that's almost a redescription rather than explanation because you, you're still having to deal with, um, you know, you're still having to deal with Kenneth's flying sorcery things and, and all the rest of it. But right. there was definitely right, right. Like, Roswell. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that happened. Um, yeah, a ton of yeah, stuff happened. It's, it's amazing. It, yeah, but it, it it comes back to almost what we're talking about with intensity of consciousness in space time. Like I don't know what it is, but forty seven is a is a pivot it, point. It peaked journey. It peaked there. Well, now. It, it um it altered the flow. So there's a kind of trajectory change as a result of a whole bunch of stuff that happened in forty seven. That's really interesting. Cool. Well. That's, I think we're, we're just about done. I will tell you about my dream. So uh, right, oh, yeah. right oh, before yeah. you um, announced that you were going to have a member section and mm-hmm. we're going to do your coursework, uh, I had a dream that you had come to teach me magic privately at my parents' house where I grew up, you know, in Chicago, which was just so weird. Yeah, I know. I do remember that tweet now. Yeah. yeah there I, you go. I, I'm pretty sure it was before you started your course and then you started your there course. There you go. And, yeah. Cool, so. Yeah, there you go. Precognitive. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah that's I cool. That was awesome. So anyway, yeah, nice one. That's it for me. That's it from Nish. Want to yeah. thank you, Gordon, so much for being with us. It's You're very been a welcome. great pleasure, Gordon. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. Please plug Thanks for some... anything you want too. Thanks for. I'm sorry. Runesoup.com. Yeah. yeah, that's where it is. The podcast, all the other links, the member stuff. If you want it, the books. If you want it, all there. Great. A new books oh, coming I recommend out. Recommend all of it. <laughs> Oh, eventually, mm-hmm. yeah. Hopefully by the end of the year. Um, I I don't talk about them until they're okay. Like well, right people need to it. get starships because yeah. Scarlet Imprint does the most beautiful books that are out yeah, there. They do. Amazing Absolutely. quality yeah. to even their paperbacks. Absolutely, and and Chaos Protocols is great. Yes, great love book. it. Nice one. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. Thank you, Thanks sir. Very much. Have a great evening. I have a great day, rather. Good night, everyone. 1 p.m. <laughs> 1 p.m. Good night, everyone <laughs> in chat. Thank you so much for being with us. And next week, please come back to watch uh, Michael Joseph, Schism 206. He's a pretty interesting dude. Gordon, you'd, you'd dig him. Uh, listen. Uh, we're going to talk about the occult uh, nature of cryptocurrency. Yeah, cool. Mm. So anyway, thank you all. Have a great evening, and we'll see you later.